I have a friend, a brother in Christ, who used to say, he probably still says, evangelicals love Romans and Pentecostals love the book of Acts. That's not my way of saying Joe is an evangelical because he's teaching through Romans in the Sunday school time and I'm a Pentecostal because you're going through and we're going through the book of Acts during our Sunday morning time. I do, however, think there might be something to my friend's caricature. Doubtless, many love Romans because of the doctrine that is set forth in Paul's epistle to the church of Rome. And sadly, perhaps, some stay away from the book of Romans because of the doctrine that is set forth in Paul's epistle to the Romans. And doubtless, there are many that love the book of Acts, perhaps because the day of Pentecost is in it, as well as speaking in tongues. And sadly, perhaps, some stay away from the book of Acts because the day of Pentecost is in it, and some speak in tongues in the book of Acts. What should be happening, and what I hope is happening here, is that we as people of God say, we love Paul's epistle to the church of Rome. We love Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. We love all spirit-inspired text in the word of God. We love it all. And as we have been going through the book of Acts, I hope that your appreciation for this amazing book and for this amazing event of Pentecost has been fanned to flame. It's been an honor to be studying the event of Pentecost, uh, the two Lord's Days that we have spent doing that. We come again to the book of Acts and particularly to the day of Pentecost. Having said much about this occasion already, I would call your attention to the message that I did, the significance and symbolism of Pentecost Part 1, because there's so much that I want to say again and again about the day of Pentecost. I would call your attention to that, but let me introduce this moment in this way. This moment, what we are studying about in Acts chapter 2, is the moment that you might say that Moses longed for. The moment that Moses longed for. Now, before he longed for this moment, Moses longed for relief, and he even longed for death. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 11 through 15, Moses felt exasperated. He felt like he was at his wit's end. The people that he had a responsibility over, the nation of Israel that had come out of Egypt and was in the wilderness, they just kept complaining. One complaint after another, so often directed at Moses, often also directed against the Lord, and Moses just felt exasperated. Listen to the words of Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. He said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I not, did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all of these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Have you ever heard someone complaining to somebody else about the person to whom they're complaining? And you're listening and there comes a point in which you begin to cringe. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, oh no, they went too far. They said too much. If you were just reading Numbers chapter 11, verses 11 through 15, you might have that cringe feeling with Moses. Like, oh, no, you didn't. Enough, Lord. Are you going to help me? How do you expect me to handle all of these people? And what I find so amazing is that we would have a right cringe reaction to Moses saying that, especially if you read earlier in the chapter. 
Because the people of Israel were complaining and the Lord was angry with the nation of Israel because they were complaining. But when Moses, if you will, complains in this moment, he's exasperated, he's pouring out his complaint to the Lord, the Lord responds with great grace. He doesn't take away Moses' life, rather he proposes a solution or he orders about a solution. Quick pastoral takeaway. At the onset of this message, let me just say this. Learn a lesson from Moses. We are told in the Scriptures, Philippians 2.14, to do all things without complaining or grumbling or murmuring. That's how we're, we're supposed to be. We're supposed to offer our requests to God with thanksgiving. That's how we're supposed to be. But there are times when we go through the Scriptures, like Psalm 142, where we might see the psalmist pour out his complaint before the Lord. Notice what Moses is doing here. He's not doing what the children of Israel did. He's bringing his complaint to the Lord. He's not complaining to others. He's not complaining to others about the Lord. He's bringing his complaint to the Lord. And the Lord so graciously meets him. Moses didn't even ask for help. He's just complaining to the Lord that he doesn't have the help that he needs. And God so graciously is going to help Moses. I think there's such a lesson for us in that. When you feel exasperated in your life and you just feel overwhelmed, please, by the grace of God, don't start complaining to others. You look in the book of Numbers and you see that complaining is like a contagion. It spreads. You want to be like Moses in this moment to some degree, to some degree, and make sure you're bringing your complaint to the Lord. Well, he does. And the Lord so graciously meets him. The Lord tells him, right in response to what Moses said, the Lord tells him to gather 70 men, 70 men of the elders of Israel, bring them to the tabernacle of meeting. That place where God's presence was gloriously revealed by the ark where his throne was represented. Numbers eleven sixteen. The Lord told Moses that he would take from the spirit, the spirit of God that was upon Moses, and he would place the spirit of God upon the 70 who were gathered so that the burden of the people might be shared and that Moses wouldn't have to bear that burden alone. You go through Numbers 11. Moses did what God commanded. He gathered the 70 elders. He placed them around the tabernacle. And then we're told that the Lord came down in the cloud and he spoke to him. And he took of the Holy Spirit that was upon Moses and he placed the Spirit upon the 70 elders. You go through the account in Numbers 11. When this happened, the elders prophesied. They did it on that occasion. They never did it again, we're told in the text. But then we're also told about two other men who remained in the camp. Eldad and Medad. We're told about them and the Spirit rested upon them. They were among those listed, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. Interestingly, we're told that a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, Moses' assistant and one of his choice men said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. As though they were doing something out of order. As though they're trying to take some sort of spotlight to themselves. Such was perhaps the perception. And you have to hear Moses' response. When Joshua tells Moses to forbid them, Moses says to Joshua, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. That moment that Moses longed for, that God's Spirit would be upon all of God's people, not just a Samson to begin to deliver the Philistines, not just a king empowered to lead Israel, not just a person here or there, but upon all of God's people. That was the moment that Moses longed for. It's the moment that we're studying about in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where God would pour out His Spirit upon all of His covenant people. 
Remember, this is what part of what's so wonderfully illustrated in Acts chapter 2 when there's tongues of fire resting upon each one. It was as though to say each one had the Spirit upon them and within them. Each one of them. And I want to say this again. I said it last week. I think it's important. That one of the most important takeaways from the day of Pentecost is that when the Spirit of God came, He came upon each one of the believers and God was not creating an upper class of spiritually empowered Christians and a lower class of not so spiritually empowered Christians. Christians who have V8 empowered spiritual engines, if you will, versus Christians who have a kind of V4 spiritual empowerment. If you think that's what Pentecost was about, God's sort of dividing the church and creating like the A team versus the B team, the varsity versus the JV, you've missed a primary point of the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was about, as Peter's going to make clear, this is the moment that Joel prophesied when God was pouring out His Spirit upon all of His new covenant people. Every single one of them would have the Holy Spirit. A beautiful part of the day of Pentecost. Whether they were young or old, old men or young men, sons or daughters, men servants or maid servants, it didn't, rem- it didn't matter their social status, it didn't matter their age. If they were the people of God and part of the new covenant people of God, the Holy Spirit was to take residence inside of them. Now there's so much more I want to say. You might recall last week, I would encourage you if you didn't hear the message last week or perhaps even if you did, to listen to last week's message where we covered what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is and what it is not. What the filling of the Holy Spirit is, and how you could pursue being filled by the Holy Spirit afresh, under His influence, and what Pentecost is meant to teach, and what Pentecost is not meant to teach. I'll just make a few points. I would call your attention to that message, but briefly, I want to tell you four things regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. One, we are never told in the Scriptures to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not once. So many commands in the New Testament, not once is there a command, seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is something that God sovereignly does. I would say point 1B would be even the apostles were not told to seek it. They were told to wait in Jerusalem for it. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They did not need to induce the Spirit's coming. They did not need to do things to make this happen. They just had to wait. Jesus said it would happen. You wait there, and at the proper time, the Holy Spirit would come and would come upon them. They just had to wait. Interestingly, as a little bit of an aside, this may be, I won't make too much of a point in this, this may be emphasized by the fact that when the Holy Spirit came, they were sitting in the upper room. Again, I don't want to read too much into that. We know that they were praying in the days leading up to Pentecost. But interestingly, the language doesn't even say that at that moment they were kneeling, or at that moment they were praising, or at that moment they were singing. We're just told they were sitting sitting in the upper room. Um, Second point I would want to make is this. If uh, Pentecostalism was correct with its view that the only evidence of speaking, uh, the only evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. And again, I, I made this point last week. Let me make this qualifier again. I became a Christian in a Pentecostal church. I love my Pentecostal brethren. I love anyone who is bought by the blood of Christ Uh, There are dear, blessed brethren who are in Pentecostal and Assemblies of God churches that I love and will spend forever with. But yet at the same time, bad theology can be very dangerous and it could lead to a lot of dangerous places. So my second point would be this. If Pentecostalism were correct, wouldn't we expect 
the speaking of tongues that happened in Acts 2. So if you're telling people you need an event like what happened in Acts 2, wouldn't we then expect that the speaking in tongues that happened would be in actual languages that could be discerned? Known tongues, foreign to the speaker, but yet known to somebody else. I would argue yes. Three, we see the purpose of tongues in the rest of the book of Acts. I want to remind you of this. You go through the book of Acts, you can really uh, very clearly see that the speaking in other languages, foreign to the person who's speaking, but native to those who are hearing, is connected with verification. Verification. You're going to see that here in Acts chapter 2, but as we go on, it was a verifiable external sign that other groups, non-Jews, like Gentiles, like Cornelius and those in Acts chapter 10, were granted full admittance into the body of Christ without becoming Jews. It was an external sign. In Acts chapter 2, as we're going to see, it was an external sign that Peter's sermon had divine attestation to it, that God was at work. It was a verification Fourth point I would make is when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, I would say, apart from some of the occasions in the book of Acts which are connected with verification and external supernatural witness that different groups receive the Holy Spirit, we see in verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that by one Spirit, or in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And a little bit later on in that same chapter, Paul asks the rhetorical question that anticipates a no answer. Do all speak in tongues? No. But all were baptized in one spirit and by one spirit into one body. So I would say the baptism of the Holy Spirit outside of those uh, occasions in the book of Acts, some of them, is that one-time event when God's people are initially immersed with and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are brought into spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ and with other believers and as a consequence of His presence are empowered by Him. So now, as we make our way into the text, verses 5 through 13, we're going to see another piece of additional significance to this day in the book of Acts, to the day of Pentecost. Beginning at Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we read the following. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. So the scene briefly shifts. We were in the upper room. There's a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. The Holy Spirit fills those in the room. They begin to speak in other languages, foreign to them, native to those who are gathered in Jerusalem. But now the scene shifts to a likely jam-packed Jerusalem. It was the Feast of Pentecost. Some say that it was the best attended of the spring feasts because the weather was suitable for traveling, more so on this occasion than any other spring feast. So Jerusalem was likely jam-packed with people. All of a sudden, the scene shifts, and we're told that there were devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, the word for devout is the Greek word, New Testament Greek word, ulabes. It means to be circumspect. It speaks of one who is cautious. It carries the idea of being pious. So these are men who sought to be circumspect in their behavior. They wanted to honor what God had commanded in the Old Testament to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. That's why in our text it's translated as devout. And I want to remind you of something here because it's very important. I think right here we have a great reminder that salvation does not come by being devout. 
these men are going to need to be saved. They're going to be told that. They were devout, they were pious, but they were not going to be saved by their piety. They were not going to be saved by being devout. They needed to be saved by the grace of God through faith alone in the person and work of Christ. I think that's so important to note. You'll see that as you go through the book of Acts. You'll see in Acts chapter 8, there's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading the scriptures. He's reading Isaiah 53. But he wasn't saved by scripture reading alone. He needed Philip to unpack who Isaiah 53 was pointing to, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ. You go to Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius. He was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who came to know that Yahweh was the one true God. He's offering up prayers. He's offering up alms. But he needed to be saved despite his being devout. He was told that he would hear through Peter words by which he and his household would be saved. So I want to remind you that somebody's religious commitment does not save them. Somebody being devout to whatever they're being devout to does not save them. The only thing that could justify a sinner and take a sinner from death to life is the spirit of the living God and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. As I was thinking about this, I thought of one of the most well-known examples in church history. A man who had his character flaws, a man who indeed had his foibles, no doubt. But I thought of Martin Luther. Martin Luther knew full well at some point uh, when he came to Christ that you could not find salvation through piety. But for a time, he lived as though being devout in religious practice could be a means to be delivered from the wrath to come. He said, recalling some of his life before Christ, he said, I was indeed a pious monk and kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say, if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery, it should have been I. All of my monastic brethren who knew me well will testify to this. I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, reading, and other good works had I remained a monk much longer. You go through Luther's story. An article by Michael Haken chronicles this well. You see that Luther's conscience could not be appeased by all his religious actions. He, he would talk about going through these works, yet constantly saying to himself things like, you have not done this correctly. You are not contrite enough. You have omitted this from your confession. Luther would even go on to say, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Luther came to find when many of those Jews who were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost would come to find that being devout does not punch one's ticket into the kingdom of God. You must believe that the fare has been paid by another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't learned that already, I pray that perhaps today you will learn what Luther learned from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that God justifies a sinner imputes to them an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness meaning a righteousness outside of them. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He imputes to their account through faith. And perhaps you'll come to see that today and perhaps you'll feel what Luther felt when he said, after understanding that, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. My devoutness could not get me there. The fare has been paid by another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe and receive that immeasurable gift. Well, back to the text. 
We're told, still in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, that these Jews who gathered in Jerusalem, they were from every nation under heaven. That language is being used idiomatically, speaking according to the horizons of the day. From every nation under heaven, where the Jews had been scattered as a result of captivities and dispersions previously in their history. During the Assyrian captivity and during the Babylonian captivity, the Jews would be dispersed all over the earth. Remember, for instance, that some Jews came back to Jerusalem in Babylonian captivity, but much more stayed where they were and had settled in the land outside of Jerusalem and Judea. And one of the things I want you to see is that the God of the universe, who could use the decree of Caesar Augustus to do doubtless so many things, more than we can imagine, but to move Joseph and Mary from where they were to bring them to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, thus to fulfill the scriptures and the prophecy made in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here the God of heaven and earth is using the Feast of Pentecost to gather Jews who had been scattered from all over to gather them into one place so that they might hear the preaching of the gospel. And then subsequently that those who believe might go from that one place and then bring the good news of the gospel back to where they came from. Amazing. Amazing. Now it brings us to verse 6. As the narrative continues, we're told, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And you go through commentators, and there'll be a little bit of a divide uh, as to what this sound was. Many would say, from what I've seen, the majority would say that that sound was the sound as of a mighty rushing wind that filled the upper room. So that's one perspective. The other perspective would be that the sound was the sound of those 120 who were gathered in the upper room making their way outside and speaking in languages that were foreign to them but native to those hearers. Well, when the multitude came together, they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, one of the things I want you to see here, do not make the mistake of thinking this was so these people could understand what was being said. I don't think that's what's happening. Because doubtless, these Jews would be able to speak Aramaic. Doubtless, they probably had a good knowledge, a working knowledge, and probably were fluent in Koinonia Greek. They could speak Greek. Greek was the common language of the day. Many people were multilingual in those days. So what's happening here, I would argue, is not a matter of they need to understand and they need to hear, so therefore they are hearing these things in their native tongues. Because when Peter's speaking, for instance, in his sermon, he's speaking in one language. And the people are going to hear his language, likely Aramaic. So then what's going on here? If it's not meant for the people to understand what's being said, why then is this happening? I would say it was a miracle to let those Jews know that what was happening was a work of Almighty God. This would prepare them. This was like a divine witness to say, what's happening here is a work of God to prepare them to hear the forthcoming sermon where Peter would bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. More about that in a moment. But for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament and Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, I want to say you have to love how we see the overcoming of Babel and what you might call perhaps the beginnings of the reversal of Babel right here on the day of Pentecost. The Jews were confused. Not because they couldn't understand the languages that were being spoken 
but because they could understand the languages that were being spoken. And they were confused for some other reasons too, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, if you remember at Babel, there was this unified rebellion. The people did not scatter across the earth as they were supposed to, but they're gathered in rebellion against God. They're building a tower so as to reach to heaven. They wanted to make their names great and known, so they're building this tower and so on. And the Lord confused their languages. Instead of having one common language, He confused their languages. In one sense, it was an act of judgment because He confused their languages. In another sense, it was an act of mercy, so they wouldn't be gathered in ongoing unified rebellion against him and bring on upon themselves great wrath. So he scattered them abroad over the face of the earth, Genesis 11, verse 8, and they ceased building the city, we're told in Genesis 11, 8. Well, I would say at Pentecost, we have the beginnings of a reversal of Babel. Instead of being scattered, Jews from every nation under heaven, to use language from Acts 2, 5, were being gathered Instead of confusion due to many languages, there is understanding despite many languages on the day of Pentecost. Instead of many languages resulting from judgment, the existence of many languages, what happened as a result of Babel, would actually serve as a basis for a miracle that would witness to the truthfulness of Peter's forthcoming gospel message. You might also say that whereas at Babel the people ceased building the city of rebellion and the tower... At Pentecost, 3,000 would join and become instruments of the building of the Lord Jesus Christ's church. Not seeking to make a name for themselves like those in Genesis chapter 11, but rather seeking to make His name known. The one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I think you could also say, if Acts 2 points to the reversal of Babel inaugurated, The picture presented to us in Revelation 5 points us towards the picture of the reversal of Babel consummated. Remember in Revelation 5, we get a glimpse of what it's like around the throne where there are people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. And we don't get a picture of a cacophony of confusion around the throne. Rather, we have all of these different nations gathering together in one unified sound saying, worthy is the Lamb. Acts 2, you could argue, is the reversal of Babel inaugurated. When God's people, all of them, are around the throne in one voice proclaiming, worthy is the Lamb, it will be the reversal of Babel consummated. But they were also amazed, as we look at verse 7, they were amazed for another reason as well. Verse 7 says, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all, all these who speak Galileans? See, that's part of what amazed them. So you and I wouldn't pick this up necessarily, but in those days, to be a Galilean was to be, to some degree, despised by the majority of the population, the Jewish population. We use that term, or we know that term, hopefully you're not using it uh, flippantly, but you can say that term, hillbilly, right? If you say that term, often it has a pejorative sense to it, right? If somebody says, oh, that person's a hillbilly, what are they saying? That person's a backwater person, they're unsophisticated, they're uneducated, and so on. That's kind of how the term Galilean was used in that first century context. If you were a Galilean, you were thought to be unsophisticated. You were were somebody who was uneducated and so on. Galileans were also said to have problems with pronouncing gutturals. They had very distinct speech. You'll remember that in Matthew 26, Peter's speech gave him away as being a Galilean. 
So part of what made the Jews wonder what was going on is that not only do you have languages being spoken, our own native languages, and we understand, but there are Galileans who are speaking them. They're not the sophisticated lot. They're not like master linguists, the Galileans. But yet they're speaking in languages foreign to them and native to us. It goes on in verse 8 and we're told, How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And we get a list of the rundown of the nations represented, at least some of them. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia. So this is land that is to the east of Jerusalem. Land that would include modern-day Iran, land that would include modern-day Iraq. This is to the east of Jerusalem. And we go on, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, after that, Judea, so immediately south of Jerusalem, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, all of which were to the north and northwest of Jerusalem. We go on, we're told that there were those from Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, all to the west and southwest. And we're told that there were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So not only Jews, but then Gentiles who had come to Judaism, they were there as well. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So from Rome, from the far western part of the empire, Cretans in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea, dwelling in the land of Crete, Arabs who are from Arabia, immediately to the east and southeast of Jerusalem, they are all there, and I want you to note a couple of things. Note how well attested this event was. There are so many witnesses in the Scripture to the historicity and the truthfulness of what you find in the Bible. Here is just one of them that you could argue implicitly. So many people from so many different places bearing witness of this supernatural miracle, many of whom would come to faith in Christ. And I just love God's efficiency in this event. He's bringing them all in from all of these different places so that they might hear the gospel, that many might be saved, and doubtless that many might bring the gospel back to the lands that they came from. And they were perplexed, and notice what they were saying in verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now part of what might have amazed them in this moment is that they were probably used to hearing the wonderful works of God, what God has done in redemptive history and so on, probably used to hearing it in Aramaic, probably used to hearing it in Hebrew, probably via the Septuagint hearing it in Greek. But to hear it in those native tongues, what was it like for them to hear Parthian, the praises of God in Parthian? Maybe they never heard the praises of God in Parthian before. What was it like to hear the praises of God in Egyptian? And so on. The examples could go on. This is part of what's amazing them. And this would provoke their curiosity. They would begin to think this is a miracle of God. Some of them would. Because doubtless, their guard would be let down to some degree because think of what they're hearing. They're hearing the praises of Yahweh. So not only are they seeing a miracle, but they could also have greater confidence that this miracle was of God because the praises were understandable. They understood what was being said. Those praises were directed to the one true God. So it's as though the Lord is preparing them, you might say, to hear the sermon that Peter is going to preach. 
It's as though God was putting his stamp on this event, letting them know this is a work of Almighty God. Get ready for the gospel. Nobody is saved through these miraculous events that are happening in this moment. It is preparing them, if you will, to hear the message that could save their souls. Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead for sinners. It's all leading up to that. But you'll notice, as is the case in here from week to week, as is the case wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the work of God is happening, there will be different reactions. Here on the day of Pentecost, we get a little bit of a glimpse in verses 12 and 13 of two different reactions to what was going on. In verse 12, we're told, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? So one reaction is curiosity. Something's going on here. I don't know what to make of it exactly, but there's something. What could this mean? They're curious. They're wondering, like, is this of God? What's the point of this? That's why, that's why Peter's sermon's so amazing. Right off the bat, he says, this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. I want to show you how this is tied in with Old Testament scripture. This is the fulfillment of what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. An immediate... Fulfillment, and we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, in two weeks and so on. But they're curious. But then there are others, and we see them in verse 13. Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. Now, you don't see it in our text. There is a conjunction there in the Greek, so as to provide a little bit of a contrast. But, or however, the others said, they are full of new wine. So they began to mock. Interestingly, the, the word for new wine could be literally translated as sweet wine. And the word there that's used is glucose. It's literally from where we get our word um, glucose from. It's tied into the etymology of that word. So this, there's this sweet wine that they perceive these to have tasted and so on. In other words, they're mocking, saying these men are drunk. That's what is going on. This is just craziness that's happening here. So you got two different reactions. One group, curious. I wonder what's going on here. Another group, mocking. Interesting, that word for mocking is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in the New Testament in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is at Athens, at Mars Hill, and he speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he did, some began to mock when they heard a resurrection being proclaimed. And I want to say, and I think it's worth us noting, that the reaction of these people here to mock what was going on, the reaction of those in Athens to mock the idea of the resurrection is sadly part and parcel of the reaction to the gospel message. Remember, when Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, he says, we preach Christ crucified. That's the general call. That's the external call that goes out, the message of the gospel. And now, generally speaking, he said, this is the reaction. When Christ crucified, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the Son of God who fulfilled Old Testament Scripture and is the only way to the Father, when He is proclaimed, generally speaking, Paul was saying two reactions to it. One, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They say, how? How could He be the Son of God? He bore the curse by hanging upon a cross according to what we're told in the Mosaic Law without realizing that, yes, he was bearing the curse of all who would believe on him for the forgiveness of sins. The other reaction, generally speaking, was that Greeks would say, it's foolishness. They would mock, foolishness. We're going to be saved through a crucified Nazarene? What silliness. But we're also told by Paul, but to those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks. So there's that general call that goes out to everybody, right? Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. And the general reaction is going to be, some are going to perceive Christ crucified to be a stumbling block, some are going to perceive it to be foolishness. But then among those who are called, that group among the external called, who are internally called out of death into life by the Holy Spirit, to them, to use language from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Christ crucified is seen as the wisdom of God and the power of God. That's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. To some of those gathered, it's going to just be a stumbling block. It's going to be perceived as foolishness. But then to 3,000 of them, by the grace of Almighty God, they are going to see Christ crucified as the wisdom of God. That God in His wisdom would make forgiveness happen through the sacrifice of His Son and through the application of saving faith and so on. So we'll get there, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But I want to close today by saying the following. Right now, as the gospel goes out, what is the reaction in your heart? I would hope by the grace of God that even as the external call has gone out many times in this message, perhaps there will be some in this room who will be like Lazarus, who will come from spiritual death out of that into spiritual life. And they'll say, no, no, I'm curious. I'm even more than curious. I I, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That this miraculous event in Acts chapter 2 was an attestation of God to the truthfulness of the message that Peter would preach, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the only way somebody can be forgiven through faith in His blood. So hopefully in this room, perhaps even now, there are those who are being internally called even as the external call has gone out. Let me also remind you, um, sons and daughters of the living God, let me remind you that on the day of Pentecost, we're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit, that inaugural work in the New Testament church where He comes and indwells all of His people. I want to remind you what I reminded you of last week. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. God Almighty has taken up residence in you. He doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. Rather, He indwells His people, empowering them to live the Christian life because they cannot do it on their own. Well, thanks be to God for His Word. Thanks be to God for the day of Pentecost. And Lord willing, in two weeks, we will see how all the preparation led to Peter's proclamation of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and its fulfillment of Old Testament Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the reminders, Lord, in Your text that we are not saved by being devout as though we could do something to climb a ladder into heaven, to build a tower, as it were, so as to make our way into heaven. We thank You, Heavenly Father, that You came down, as it were, sending Your Son, and that Your Son came down from heaven, bore our wrath upon the cross, and was raised from the dead so that all who believe in Him would have everlasting life. Father, I pray that as a response to Your grace that we would be devout, that we would be circumspect in our speech and our behavior, that we would live lives committed to the Gospel, that the same Holy Spirit that we see poured out in Acts chapter 2 would empower us so that we'd be under His influence. Even as You wrote through Paul, be not drunk with wine wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to have the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be freshly empowered by the Holy Spirit so as to love, so as to proclaim the Gospel, so as to walk in the peace of Christ and to make the Gospel known. 
Help us, Father, we pray, for Your glory. And Lord, even as we saw the nations gathered to Jerusalem, we thank You that in some respect, even in Staten Island and in New York City, there's a measure in which that the nations have gathered to the place in which we live. Father, I pray that You would make us, Lord, ready to share the Gospel so that the Gospel might go out and that others who are outside of Christ might come to know Christ and perhaps bring the Gospel back to their own families or their own lands, Lord. We ask these things for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.